Morning, church family. Thank you all so much for being here with us this morning at Mission Church. Uh, we are thankful to have this place uh, to gather in and to lift high uh, the name and the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission, and uh, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be the one preaching and teaching here uh, this morning uh, to you. And so if you're a guest, welcome here. Um, I hope to get to know you and get to meet you and to spend some time with you. And as well, those of you who are part of our faith family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, man, thank you guys for gathering with us, for making this a point, and for, for making this a priority for you and your family. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me today to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is found inside the New Testament. It was written by this guy named Paul. Um, he had started this church in the city, the ancient city of Corinth, about three years ago from the time that he wrote this letter. He's gone on to plant more churches in other cities, but he's writing back to them because there is much problem and division within the church. We're titling this sermon series on 1 Corinthians called Fight the Drift because all of us in our relationship with Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, are prone to wonder, as that song we just sang says, that, that the, the Christ whom we love, whom we adore, whom has saved us, is that uh, we, you and I, even if we are in Christ, have a tendency to drift away from him, to drift away from his teachings, to drift away from his mission, to drift away from his church. And this scripture, along with this series, is a calling us back to the plumb line that is Jesus, that is Christ, that he is our foundation, that the gospel is still relevant, that he still has a mission for you and I uh, to accomplish on this earth in his uh, name. So if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is, is we are going to cover um, the, uh, another section of 1 Corinthians. Pastor Justin did the first kind of half last week. Um, I'm in just a moment going to read all of chapter 4, but uh, pick out some points and then cover a lot of that last section there. But in order to do that, I think it's important to establish uh, some of the context that's taking place there. So in 1 Corinthians, 1 First, I want you to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, um, to, so that we can, again, be reminded of the issues that are taking place and why is Paul uh, addressing uh, these things. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So then flip over with me to chapter 4, and let us read that together. Chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. This is how we should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and disclose the purposes of the heart. 
then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already, you have all that you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you, you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are disrepute. In the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And, and we labor, working with our own hands. We're, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. That's my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. For what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and the spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. There once was a church. This church had humble beginnings. Started in a living room, about 30 people or so. And as time progressed, they grew out of that living room and began to borrow space from this place and that place. They were committed to Jesus. They were strongly committed to expositional preaching, which is like what we do here at Mission, is preaching line by line, verse by verse, sometimes word for, by word. They began to spread the gospel. They were um, completely filled with empathy and compassion for those who were far from God. There once was a church. There once was this church that became 
so convinced that Jesus was who he said that he was that they began, again, to share the gospel with lost and dying people within their city. And, and lo and behold, as they shared the gospel and as they preached the gospel on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, Jesus began to save people over and over and over. People whom the world and through many people thought could never be saved were being saved by Jesus. Their baptistry was filled with people making a public profession of faith and proclaiming that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is Lord. By the grace of God, this church began to grow. More and more space, it began to to multiply its gatherings. It began to multiply where it was meeting. In the midst of time, when many were not listening to the church, many throughout the country and throughout the world began to listen to its leadership, began to read its blogs, to listen to its sermons. In about 2005, I came across this church. I was pastoring at another church, and like many of you, I, uh, I was, I was uh, enjoying the ministry at the church that I was serving at, but I was, I was just longing to continue to be discipled and develop myself, and I came across in my educational studies this church, and by this time, this church had grown to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. They continued to, to baptize people and baptize people. Their yearly budget was probably somewhere in the, 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 the tens to twenties of millions of dollars. Their, their expansion and their networks had become global. And in 2005, I began to just really be inspired by this church. I love their mission. I love how they teach the Bible. Uh, I love their desire for church planting. And so about that time, I began to travel out uh, to where this church was located on the West Coast. I began to take other young men that I was discipling with me. Um, I met their leadership and uh, man, just came home every time refreshed and encouraged and with a heart's desire uh, to one day plant a church. This humble beginnings led to a, now a ministry that was, again, thousands upon thousands of people, probably upwards to 12,000 people ended up belonging to this church after about 15, 16, 17 years of existence. What started in a living room was now this well-known TV scene ministry. There once was a church. And in 2014, one day that church existed, and the next day, in its like 13 locations, and its thousands of people were no longer a church in the matter of about 24 hours. Because 
of the arrogance of not just one of its leaders, but many. And I would suggest to you many of its membership. And I would suggest to you because many of us who followed it from afar. Sin went unchecked. Sexual sin and perversion. And I would say in this picture, uh, a picture of toxic masculinity. And I'm very careful about using that term. I actually hate that term. But in this case, I think that it, it, it plays out. I would say emotional, spiritual abuse, specifically of females and employees, both men and women. That from the outside... This church appeared to have everything. It was successful even from the world's terms. And yet on the inside of it, there was a cancer of arrogance, pride, and disgust and that it went so far to be unchecked that it eventually it caused that body of believers to completely implode. There once was a church. Now, friends, I wish I only had one story like that. But there are many stories of churches who started out in humble beginnings, loved Jesus, loved the Bible, loved their people, loved their city, by strong theologians, by a plurality of pastors, by, by covenant members and, and gospel-centered women and men and children that are piles of rubble today, both physically in their physical buildings and also in the hearts and minds of many of its former followers and members. You don't have to go for a, a, a short trip in Europe to learn about all the empty churches and buildings. There once was a church. Paul, in this passage, and in this letter, specifically as he hones in in chapter 4, And as Pastor Justin addressed in in the early verses of chapter 4, Paul is establishing himself and trying to to show himself because, again, there there is disunity within this body, and Paul is writing this letter because of that. As Pastor Todd, we were talking earlier, and he was talking about how it pleases us as earthly dads to see our kids like in unity with each other. And and what it must be like similarly for, for the Lord, for God our Father, when there is great unity, that that brings pleasure and glory and honor to God and yet this church that is three years old is completely crumbling at its seams. It has drifted away from Jesus. It has drifted away from the mission. It has drifted away from unity to create its its own uh, stature and being. 
And Paul writes earlier, as Pastor Justin preached in this passage, in verse, uh, what is it, 1 and 2 there, that he's talking about the responsibility of us as pastors and elders to be faithful servants to the body, to not abuse power, but to be unifiers, to not come just a boastering of themselves and making the church about themselves, but rather that we preach Christ, we preach him crucified, and that that is the unifying, uh, unifying glue that is what makes us the body of Christ. See, people were arguing over all kinds of things, as we'll discuss. But one of the things that they were arguing about was the different leaders. And like, hey, we're gonna, hey Paul, you were cool. Thanks for planting the church. But now we're going to listen to these guys. We're going to listen to this person or this person who has some clout within the church or some respect within the church. It's like, thanks, Paul, for your time, but we've, we've moved on from you. See, the church in Corinth had believed in some way in their arrogance that they had arrived in some way. Like, we've reached a level, and we're good. We're content with the level that we've reached in our relationship with Jesus. Like, you know, we've said the prayer, Paul. We've repeated that to the preacher. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart. I receive you. You know, I repent of my sins. We've said those things, Paul. We, we've got dunked in the baptistry. We're, we're good. We've got this all together. And so Paul begins to address this in, in these verses. Specifically, uh, look with me at the, the verses there, 8 um, through 13. Is that Paul, um, in his tone, goes right into sarcasm. Again, as we learned last week, is that the responsibility of us as pastors, and as, as Pastor Justin correctly, I think, identified, is that, that we as Christians are to be faithful. But our hope, our trust in the person and work of Jesus, we are faithful in following after Christ. And so we come to these verses in 8 through 13 where, where, where Paul sarcasm, he uses sarcasm here, and, and, and it's hard to understand really his tone, and I'm going to try to preach it in the tone that I think that he is doing it in. But he comes to this place in this where he said, you know, he, he's trying to get this, them to understand something. That in their arrogance, that they believe that in some way that they have um, arrived. Again, they have reached a level of maturity that, that they can just live out the rest of their lives. That they don't need to go any deeper to plummet the depths of the foundation that is Jesus. And so Paul, treating them like children, because that's what he calls them in an earlier chapter, is that they believe that they're mature. And yet Paul says they're acting like children. And so Paul, like we've done this as parents, sarcastically, or, or using irony here, compares and contrasts the faithfulness of the preachers and the pastors and the apostles compared to this church who thinks that they are really faithful. And he's showing how both of their lives look exact opposite when they should look similar because this is what faithfulness looks, looks like. So, so notice in these passages, as they believe that they've arrived, he says, you know, they, that, that in some way that they become rich. Well, you guys have, you've received everything. You are wealthy. You are rich already. Without us, 
you didn't need us. You've become like kings in the kingdom of God. He would go on to say, you know, we were sentenced to death. We are our spectacles. And we, the apostles, the preachers, the teachers, the faithful, that, that, that we're fools for Christ. But not you guys. You guys are wise. He would go on in those passages, right? He said, man, we are weak as apostles, as disciples, as preachers and teachers. But not you. You're strong. He would continue on in this. He would say, you know, you, you're, you're, you are honored as a group of people, as a church, as, as believers. Man, you've really done it. They really honor you. But we're in this people. You are gluttons. You have everything. But the faithful are hungry. The faithful are thirsty. They claim to have Christ. And yet it was easy for them. They claim to know Jesus. Man, this Christian life, man, this is easy. Golly jeepers. It's like, man, going to Disney every day. This is so easy to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul is like, you must be doing it wrong. We're hungry and thirsty and homeless. We're getting beat up. We're being fed to the lions. We're being dipped in tar by Nero and stuck on a post and lit so that we can light up his gardens. Being drugged behind chariots, being stoned to death. But man, for you, man, following Jesus, that's the easy road. Why was it easy for them? It was easy for them because they live like the world. Of course it's easy for you and I if we claim to follow Jesus and live like everyone else. They live like the world. We have Christ, they're saying. They're professing. We, we have Christ, and yet we've adopted the wisdom of the world. The way they think, the way they see the world, the way they vote, the way they act, the way they do their families, the way their marriages, the way they raise their kids looks exactly like how everyone else in the world is doing it. The only difference is, is they profess to have Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, that there is a serious, serious problem and this is in exact opposition to the person and work of Jesus. This is in exact opposition to what it means to be followers of Jesus. He mentions arrogance to them four times, right? The first time he says something about, you know, they're being puffed up, which is the Greek translation for what it means to be prideful or arrogant. It means to, like, in, inflate something. We often call this, don't be big-headed about that, Right? What are we talking about? We're talking about people inflating themselves. They're sticking out their chest. They're, they're pumping themselves up. They, they believe something uh, about themselves. 
mentions it four times. Arrogance, arrogance, boasting, being puffed up. He uses that illustration between 8 and 13 to show that in their wisdom, they are biblically foolish. See, arrogance justifies sin. Arrogance covers up. Arrogance lives a double life. Arrogance convinces oneself that, you know, we, we can party. Mom and dad are going away for a few days, kids. Don't throw any parties. Arrogance is that belief of that teenager that mom, as while mom and dad are away, that you can throw the party and get everything cleaned up. But I've seen enough 80s movies to recognize mom and dad always come home early. And there are Doyle red cups everywhere. That's what arrogance does. Arrogance believes that, man, you can think really highly of yourself. They believe that they're faithful. And I love Jesus. But they were unfaithful. See, pride creates a false reality. Arrogance creates a false reality. Why? Because it is, it is birthed from, created from Satan himself, right? Is that, that is the picture that we see of Satan. Is he's, that he's the great deceiver, that he's filled with pride, that he's filled with arrogance. And it's been said that at the center of all of our sin is arrogance and is pride. This is what Paul says, and I think the passage and the language infers that he comes across kind of as this sarcastic deliverer of, of the reality of who they really are. Any parents, you've used that scheme? Oh, it won't burn you. Yeah, you go ahead. Oh, yeah. My uncles used to tell me all the time to go play in the street. It took me a long time to figure out what they were telling me to do. You only play in the street once. Because you either get hit by a Mack truck or you'll almost get hit. And you'll stay in the yard. But they were just being mean because that was my uncle's. We see this, this picture as Paul is addressing this, and you can kind of see, like, you know, I just, this proverbial eye roll. Oh, man, you, you rich, you're, you're gluttonous, you know, you, you are so strong. You are so faithful. Man, there must be something broken in us because we're fearing for our lives as we preach the gospel. It goes from that tone to this tone. And it changes. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Now, brothers and sisters, we've got to get away from this idea that the Bible is not cool on shaming people. Because the Bible doesn't have a problem with shaming people. In the next chapter... He says, I'm saying these next things to shame you. 
If you don't ever get in shame, that means you never get embarrassed about anything. So there is a time for shame. But Paul's illustration at this moment isn't to shame them. He's coming at them to to admonish them. And what what does he say here in this passage? I do not write these things to, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as what? As beloved children. Paul addresses them as a spiritual father. Verse 15, For for though you have many uh, countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. So, so Paul has this goal here, is that, that, that though he was just being sarcastic and a little ironic, don't you think? Um, is, yeah, some of y'all get that later. Um, but we, when we see this, is that he's, he's speaking this sarcastic, ironic kind of, <laughs> oh, oh, you got this all together, right? You must know more than I do. To admonishing them, changing tone. I'm writing this not just so that you feel bad. I'm I'm writing this to admonish you. Hey, warning, warning, warning. I'm I'm, I'm writing this to caution you. I'm writing this to reprove you. I'm I'm writing this to, to plead from the, you have drifted from a place of humility to pride. You have become arrogant. You have become puffed up. What he hopes to convey through these words is that, that the Lord would use them because they need to understand the serious offense to God that is causing serious issues within the church. They had become hard of hearing. They, they could not understand the depths of their sins. The church, these people are immature. They are Divisive. They are quarrelsome. And yet, they are loved. The Father disciplines those whom He loves. He tells them, you know, you've got lots of gods. It's the Greek word for like teacher or guide or guardian. He says you've got, you've got guardians. Imagine a babysitter for a second. You take your kid and, or a person comes to your house or you take your kid somewhere, right? And, and you hand them your bucket-headed kid because, man, you just need a breather. You've got to go to work, going out to date, whatever it is. The complete expectation is, is that while your child is, the child is in their hands that they're going to guard them, protect them, to teach them, right? And so Paul is saying... You've got many of those. And those are good. Those are good people to have in your lives. But you don't have many fathers. Likewise, the best way I know how to equate this is that, uh, you know, there are many pastors in the world. There are 
lots of resources. You can go to the Christian bookstore. You can go online. You can go to Amazon. You can go to YouTube. You can find Christian pastors and preachers and teachers and disciple makers written for by men, written by women, all these sorts of things. Is that You can find now in our culture a plethora of teachers and pastors out there. But those men and women aren't your pastors. And you have to understand the difference. Your pastors are the ones who are keeping watch over your soul. Not the guy or gal that you can watch on YouTube who is a pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever they want to call themselves. Can those things be good and beneficial to us? Absolutely. Even Paul is saying, man, you got, you got good gods. I mean, those things are very beneficial. I use them every week. I try to listen to almost a sermon every day by someone else other than myself. I read books. I got a couple of them. Those are good gods. But they do not replace what it means to belong to a local church and to have a group of men, your pastors, to fatherly, pastorally, not replace God the Father, but as illustration, Paul uses the concept of fathering, pastoring, parenting, teacher, as the people who really keep accountable to you. And so it's great, Paul, saying that you've got all these guides and that, man, they can be beneficial to you, but they do not replace the need for you to be under, uh, I would say now, as the, the, the New Testament is continually written, as it was written, Paul gives us uh, how to do that, is to establish a plurality of elders, to watch over you, to protect you, to say, hey, we've got we to get back to Jesus. We gotta, we've, we've drifted here. We've got to get back to Jesus. You know, it's like, it's herding sheep. It's like, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. All these things can be beneficial. And he, he, he goes on from there to say, right, is that, that, that okay, I'm going to send Timothy. He's like a Padawan. He, he's, he's this young man. I have disciples. He's my apprentice. He's the one that I've taught. And so I either have sent him or, or I'm going to send, send him uh, to you to kind of reflect uh, and to remind you of, of the way in which that I have taught you. I need you to imitate me as I imitate Christ, as he will say uh, later on. He's saying, man, you've got to come back to Jesus. You've got to come back to the gospel. So Paul says that he's going to send Timothy. But please understand this. Paul is not sending Timothy with a new strategy for church growth in Corinth. Paul is not sending Timothy with this new drama to do in front of the church or this new way of incorporating relevance, you know, of, man, we, we probably need to sing, you know, this, this hit song in, inside of our culture on a Sunday morning so that we can really attract people to the church. I couldn't imagine me and Amanda singing up here, Sweet Home Up in Heaven, which is a bad rendition and a bad paraphrase of Sweet Home Alabama, in hopes of really, man, come to our church. They sing Sweet Home Up in Heaven. Happens all the time. You feel that pressure all the time. 
Now, Paul is sending Timothy again to remind them of the gospel. He's, he's sending Timothy to say, man, you got to come back to the Christian way of life, to come back to Christ, not to be innovative and, and relevant and catchy and funny and all those sorts of things. No, we, we come back to the core foundation that, that is Jesus. At the core of what we teach, at the core of what we want to experience is Jesus, his word, a, a God word focus. And he says to them in this last few verses, right, in verses, uh, what, 18 and following, I, uh, some of you, again, are arrogant, as though I were, I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord will. So Paul hopes to come back to them, but some of them are believing, hey, Paul is never going to show back up here. But what is Paul's desire? What is his heartbeat? Why? Because he loves these people. Their souls are at stake. He says, and when I get there, I'm going to find out. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in, in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come with a rod or with love in the spiritual spirit of gentleness? Paul is acting like the spiritual father here. He's acting like the spiritual parent because he is that. Remember, he planted the church. He preached the gospel there. Jesus saved people. A church grew. He's left them. Uh, he, he's already written them one letter. First Corinthians is actually Second Corinthians. He saw waywardness. He saw drifting. So he addressed that as a good parent. Because again, allowing your children to be fair and run all over the place and cause havoc is terrible parenting. Good parenting is exhausting. you got to stay on it all the time because if not, they end up becoming teenagers and adults who have lost their ever-loving minds. So good parenting is when you stay on it. Uh, nope, uh, nope, 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 nope. And when you get to say yes, you're like, yes. But most of the time, you're just like, nope, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. That's good parenting. Everybody get that hand motion. Stop it, stop it, stop it. It's more like this. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Yes, stop it. Yes, stop it. Yes, yes, maybe. Go ask your mom, all right? <laughs> he has to stay on it. It's not that Paul is a killjoy. It's that once, one day you wake up, church family, and they say, there once was a church. was a church. It was a mighty church. Those people love Jesus. They love the word. They love their city. There once was a church. Paul longs to see them. He's going to figure out, again, the Corinthians are in love with rhetoric, right? They're in love with good speakers. And so Paul addresses that. He says, okay, I'm going to find out if these people are just good talkers or if there's really the power of the Holy Spirit that is inside of what they're doing and saying. See, a sign of, of immaturity, you listen to me, a sign of immaturity is, is a person who does a lot of talking but not a lot of listening. A, a, a sign of, of immaturity is a person who knows all the Christianese. They know saying, okay, this is when I say I'm sorry. This is when I drop a tear. Uh, this is when I apologize or I drop my head, right? This is when, oh, I, I've, I'm, I'm showing remorse. 
hoping that people buy into it. Hoping that people will bite the manipulation and guess what some people do? Immaturity is pride, arrogance. They, they know what to say. They know the Christian needs. They've been churched up to know, again, to know by simply saying certain things or certain stanzas and things like that together that, man, we just, we just move right on along. I'm not really going to change, but, man, I just, um, you know, I, I'm sorry. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul will later tell the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, because of our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There is a, an expression of, of people who are claiming and, and professing to have a relationship with Jesus. And man, it's all talk. But when you warn them and warn them and warn them and warn them and you say, brother, turn, brother, turn, brother, turn, brother, turn, brother, turn, sister, don't do this, sister, don't do this, sister, don't do this, sister, don't do this, brother, turn, sister, brother, sister, brother, you're heading toward a cliff, you're heading toward a cliff, you're heading toward a cliff, repent, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, and this is exactly what Paul is doing, but they will not listen, why? Because pride and arrogance causes us to have blind spots. Pride and arrogance causes us to create a false narrative and reality that does not exist. Pride and arrogance seared what is officially known as narcissistic personality disorder. It's this narcissist system that, man, I've got this all together. Man, why, I don't see, what, what is the big deal with this sin, really? I don't understand. What, what is the big deal here? And the gospel and Paul and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is saying, Lord, Awake and cover, pull the scales off your eyes. You are heading, your soul is at stake. Repent, come back to Jesus. Stop what you're doing. You're arrogant and filled with pride and we love you. And please, stop it. Come to Jesus. But it's like putting makeup on a pig. It's getting all, all prettied up. It's doing your hair if you have it. It's getting all prettied up and fancied. Going down here to Hickory and Brook and, and getting you a meal. And stepping all up in there with your swagger, with who's who in Bowling Green. Shutting down at the chef's table. Ha! Woo! Gonna be at the marriage supper of the land. That brother be down there cooking for us in the name of Jesus. And you're all prettied up in a fancy place. You're with a group of people. And you're just carrying on, laughing, having a good time. But you got asparagus in your teeth. Got a big old piece of romaine lettuce covering your grill. And you got no clue. And you're carrying it on, going about your business. When everyone else can see it, 
And your good friends who love you, they go, amen. Got a garden growing in your mouth. Got some, something all up in there, right? Bad friends are those people who just let people keep going. Good friends who love you, all right, don't try to bust you out in front of everybody. It's a text message. Hey, look at your phone. Look at your phone. Garden mouse. <laughs> Sorry. Such is the pig picture of an arrogant person in church. Who, man, you got it all together. Got your Bible. You like to sing Christian songs. It's just an expression of arrogance and pride. Because you will not listen to the counsel of true wisdom as they tell you, stop it. Stop it. Enslaved by pride, we become blind, we become deaf, we become forgetful, but we sure talk a lot. Pride comes before the fall. Paul is calling them to repentance. He is calling them to turn from their evil ways. He is calling them to come back to Jesus. Paul, Paul is, is prayerful that the church, that they will leave these letters before he gets there, and then he'll find out, and they've repented. What does that mean? That means to turn the boat. You've drifted. Turn. Come back on track. He's hoping through these letters before he's able to arrive, man, that, that the Lord has used the preaching of the gospel to the reminding, to the imitation, to, to Timothy coming showing them, man, that they, they will come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ because he loves them. He loves them. To not love is to let them just go. He, he, he loves them in hopes that they, they, they will come back. And in the coming back, what does he do? Man, we rejoice. Mission Church, what does this mean for us? A, ch a church becomes blind because it's filled with blind people. saying that we are blind holistically, but we have blind spots. Like, I've got them, and you do too. And that's why we need each other. Right? To help us get the stuff off our face. But most importantly, off of what's killing us in our hearts. I guess I was already pre-thinking about this, and I asked my my MC a few weeks ago if I could be vulnerable with them. And I was trying to think about um, how to connect a, an illustration to uh, how we as pastors function and often what is going through our hearts and our, our minds as we try to pastor people. And so I asked our MC this question. I said, you know, many of you guys in this room are parents. And I was like, in your parenting, have you ever um, 
become grievous or frustrated, maybe even angry. As you're working with your toddler or you're working with your teenager because you're trying to teach them something. Right? And you have to do it over and over and over and over and over. And they know what to do. But they continue to choose to do the opposite. Anybody parents know me there? And, and you long for, because you've got lots of baggage, right? You've made lots of mistakes. I have in my life. And you're trying to save your kid from these pitfalls. Hey, if you'll just listen to me, I know I'm bald-headed. I know I'm a big old Uncle Fester-looking fella. But I know a little bit. And if you'll just listen to me, I can save your heart and your mind. I'm not, t- I'm not promising you a perfect life, but control what you can control. And if you just listen to this wisdom, I, 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 I promise to you that some of these things will be a little bit easier. And then you just long because you seemingly want more for that kid than they want for themselves. Anybody feel me? That's what it's like being a pastor. That's what it's like being a disciple maker. As you come to people and you say, stop. As you come to people and you say, that is not the gospel. As you come to people and you say, you're going your wayward way. You're drifting. You're going off a cliff. And they look at you like a puffed up kid. This ain't that big a deal. I got this. Like that four-year-old kid that won't listen. What do you do, Mama? What do you do, Daddy? You love them. And every day. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Stop it. Stop it. Come, come, you know, just listen, listen to Mom and Dad. Parents, this thing, this beast called teenagers, right? You see it? They no longer need you. They're getting advice from peers, which is a death trap. And you're like, hey, if you, if you just listen to me, and, and we use bad words at this point, because you've been doing this since they were little, and you say, if you just shut up a minute, I apologize for cursing in church. If you just be quiet in this minute, and you'll just trust what I'm trying to do, this is probably going to work out for you better. But in arrogance and pride, my parents are crazy. My parents are weird. Now, Mission Church, do not go to your MC this week and talk about parenting. Because if you do, you've missed the point of the sermon. The illustration is parenting. It's not the purpose. You understand that? Because we're the kids. We're the arrogant kids. So please don't butcher this text 
this week at your MC to go talk about how you can become better parents. Let's go to our MCs this week and please with, plead with the Lord to grow us up. To plead with each other to repent and to come back to Jesus. To plead with each other that if we see each other going wayward, to stop it. To ask the tough questions. To pray with. On bending knee, to fast with. To call out to God. To do. Why? Because in humility is this big question of teachability. And if you're filled with arrogance and pride, you're not teachable. Because you know everything. And yet the posture of the gospel is, is that we hold the line of the gospel. Do you get that? We hold the line. But we do not do it with flexed, puffed up chest. No, brothers and sisters, we hold the line of the gospel with an outstretched arm. Pleading with Jesus to lift us up. Like a kid needing to be hugged. To our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First Peter. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfailing crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you. That means elders and members. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. He opposes the puffed out chest and big head. But when we come to Jesus and our Father, He picks us up. And He draws us near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.